and welcome to another episode of Evolving Prisons with me, Kagan Carey. My guest today is Elizabeth Franklin Best. Elizabeth has been a criminal defence lawyer in the United States for over 20 years, specifically an appellate lawyer. Today, Elizabeth talks about her time working on death penalty cases and some of the misconceptions people have about the impact of the death penalty. She speaks about how it can be difficult for people in prison to bring charges against the maltreatment they've received in prison. We also speak about private prisons, and Elizabeth also shares how very lengthy prison sentences can cause more harm than good. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. It's very exciting to have you on the podcast because I've never had a criminal defence lawyer come on the podcast before. So thank you for joining us. Do you want to start just by telling us why did you become a lawyer and specifically what motivated you to work with people accused of crime? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, thank you again for having me on. It's just such an interesting podcast that you have. And I've had an opportunity just to kind of look at it. And it's just really, really great subject matter. Yeah, so I have been a criminal defense lawyer for about 21 years now. And it's interesting because I think like a lot of people in this area, when I initially went off to law school, I kind of figured I would be a prosecutor. I was interested in just kind of like human drama. You know, I just had watched Law and Order and other television shows like a number of people had. So I went there and kind of had the opportunity to start taking some law classes. And at the end of my first year, I took an internship at the Wyoming Public Defender's Office. And there was a appellate lawyer there, well, a lawyer who sort of ran their appellate division. And so I worked for her and I started doing appeals and I just loved it. It just kind of fit like a glove <laughs> and um, I've never turned back. I mean, I ended up like my third year working as a student director for a defender aid clinic. And then once I graduated, I mean, I just went looking for criminal defense jobs. And that's what I kind of started doing. And it's where I've ended up. Fantastic. And what would you say are some misconceptions that people have about criminal defense lawyers? Kind of a number of them. You know, I mean, I think there's a perception in some quarters that criminal defense lawyers are just out for the money and that we're kind of lacking in our own moral compass, that we're willing to kind of represent people who are accused of terrible crimes. But it's just so not true. And I think like once you actually spend time with most of the people who do criminal defense work, you'll find that most people are kind of social justice minded and that they really kind of want to assist those who you know, who are not really capable of advocating for themselves and who want to give voice to the powerless in our society and people who just want to kind of help protect people from what can be just the extraordinary power of the government. You know, when the government sort of decides that you are in its crosshairs, it could be a terrifying experience. And so most criminal defense lawyers I know really are trying to to serve those particular values. That's such a perfect answer. And are you happy to maybe share one of the biggest challenges that you've had in your career defending people who are accused of crime? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I spent about seven or eight years doing a lot of death penalty work. And death penalty cases in the United States can be just some of the most difficult cases there are. And it's because, I mean, obviously, 
what the government is seeking to do is pretty extraordinary, but also kind of the emotions that can get involved. I mean, when you've got somebody who is almost certainly committed a really terrible crime, I mean, there's some real victims in these cases who have experienced extraordinary loss. And I mean, I just remember we had this one case where we had an African-American client who committed a crime out of Charleston, South Carolina. And we started kind of looking through the jury selection in that particular case and thought it looked a little weird. I mean, it sort of looked like the prosecutor was maybe excluding certain jurors based on race. And so then we decided to kind of look into her history and we found what we thought were other situations where this had happened. So we got some professionals from the Michigan State University to perform really kind of a sort of a quantitative analysis of the jury strikes in those particular cases. And it looked like she, in fact, was, had kind of a history of excluding African-Americans. And so we had to advance this particular claim. But it really caused a lot of heartburn. I mean, the prosecutor found it personally offensive. People who also kind of work for the state of South Carolina found it really offensive. And we just had this one hearing on trying to get some discovery, some additional evidence to kind of support this claim. And I remember my co-counsel and I like walked into this courtroom where we had the prosecutor, the attorney general's office, county attorneys, we had the judge. I mean, there are so many kind of hostile figures in that room. And I just had co-counsel and my client. (laughs) And I mean, and I just have to tell you, I mean, sometimes it could just be really difficult, kind of emotionally difficult to be in that space. And I mean, I found doing death penalty work to be just some of the most difficult work I've had to do as criminal defense lawyer. I'd love to come back to that and ask you why, but I'd also like to just ask if you're able to share this what ended up happening in that case that you were talking about where the prosecutor was doing that? So we ended up losing that in state court. The court, in fact, our South Carolina Supreme Court didn't even want to hear the claim. So we lost in sort of the circuit level. And because it was a death penalty case, we appeal it to the South Carolina Supreme Court. They decided they didn't want to hear the case, which procedurally meant that our client needed to pursue his claims in federal court. And so that's where he is right now, pursuing his rights under with a federal habeas petition. And so he's got new attorneys who specialize in this area. And so they're running with the claim. And, you know, right now they're working on it and it'll be presented to the federal courts at some point. Okay, so his trial never went ahead then, did it? He was tried and convicted of capital murder and he received the death sentence. He had a direct appeal that didn't raise what we call like a Batson claim, the juror issue. So he lost that. And it was after he lost that that I got involved. So I represented him on what's called post-conviction relief. And that's where we were trying to make allegations of ineffective assistance of counsel, prosecutorial misconduct. And so that's when we started developing that particular claim. So it's just different procedural posture than most cases probably. And I could imagine death penalty cases are very difficult, but why in your experience do you find them particularly difficult? 
Well, so when you've got a death penalty case, oftentimes your client, you know, the person who has committed a terrible crime, oftentimes comes from either has mental health issues, comes from a life of poverty and neglect and abuse. And so when you have a death penalty case, I mean, you've got to deal with sort of like the facts of the case, which are often really bad. I mean, that's there's a reason why you know somebody is seeking the death penalty against that person. So you've got like real victims who have suffered real harm. And then you also have clients who have suffered real harm during the course of their lives. And I mean, I can tell you of all the guys that I've represented on death row, I've never had one that has not had profound mental health issues or has had profoundly challenging backgrounds of abuse. And sometimes that abuse can be just so horrific, you just can't even imagine it. And so you spend long periods of time on these cases. I mean, they don't go away in two years. I mean, I've got, you know, I'm still peripherally involved in cases that I've had for a decade now. And so you spend that amount of time with those it could just be heartbreaking, frankly. And then when you have a successful outcome in a death penalty case, it usually just means that somebody's going to be serving the rest of their lives in prison. You know, I mean, people don't get out of prison when you win in a death penalty case. And so just so all those factors together, just a lot of human pain. And you just have to be prepared to handle that over long periods of time. And I think I mentioned just kind of the difficulties of having clients with mental health issues. I mean, that could mean that maybe you're picking up the phone and you're getting screamed at, or you've got a client who's decided he wants to waive all of his appeals and try to hurry up and be executed. I mean, there are always these, you know, kind of huge issues that you're dealing with and it can just be challenging. I mean, there's some really great people who practice in that area and there's just a great community of lawyers who do death penalty work in the United States. And I think it's because you know, we just had sort of this shared understanding of how difficult these cases can be. And, you know, it's, it's definitely something that I think people, before they start to do that kind of work, need to really kind of check in and make sure that that's something that they really want to commit themselves to, because it certainly is not for everyone. Yeah, I can imagine it's very difficult. And the death penalty is such a controversial subject. I mean, prison's a controversial subject, but I feel like the death penalty is next level controversial subject. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Everybody has their different views on what should happen, what shouldn't happen. So it must be a very difficult area to work in. Well, I do appreciate these days sort of, I mean, because I've kind of stepped away from the death penalty work. And so like these days I'm representing really just more people who are doing kind of regular crimes, you know, people who are getting the kinds of sentences that we would normally see. And it's been really gratifying to kind of bring a lot of the techniques and ways of sort of seeing things that I learned in death penalty work and moving it into the regular criminal justice system. And so, for example, like in death penalty cases, we would always use what's called like a sentence mitigation expert. And that would be somebody who would be responsible for like collecting records, you know, school records, medical records, interviewing like a whole number of family members, coworkers, just anything or anyone that kind of came in contact with the client as a way of kind of humanizing that person, right? And, so, and the goal in death penalty work is to offer the jury a reason to, you know, give your client a life sentence. That kind of aspect of it, that investigation that happens just for the purpose 
of getting sort of, you know, a, a just sentence is something I've really tried to bring into my criminal defense work now. So I've got, a, you know, a mitigation specialist that I use on a number of my cases. And it's really moved the needle in some of those cases because it's, you know, as a lawyer, sometimes you just don't have the best kind of ways of, of getting information and, and getting information out of people. I mean, people who are highly trained and kind of like social work and things like that, who can really kind of sit down and get people to talk to them about things that have happened in their lives. It's just so valuable. And that's just the kind of attention that, you know, I think that the courts need to be paying to the people who are coming before them, who they're sentencing. And it's, it's definitely just kind of something that has sort of changed. Yeah, I, I agree. It is good that courts are starting to do that. And in Scotland, there's they're now doing this thing where people under 25, they say that their brains aren't developed enough yet. And they're talking about actually looking at the trauma that people have suffered and looking at what their history is when thinking about sentencing people. And I want to ask you, from your experience, are clients that you've dealt with who are on death row, are they any different than other people? And the reason I ask that is because people who I've spoken to who are pro-death penalty say that these people are monsters and they are too dangerous. Whereas for me, naive or not, I believe that everybody has the right to rehabilitation. People need to be in prison, of course, if they've committed murder and things, they absolutely need to go to prison. But death is so final that these people don't have the chance for rehabilitation. So I'm just eager to know from your experience, would you say these people are different than other people who have been convicted of crime that you've dealt with? So many of them are different in the sense that they've had, most of them have had extremely traumatic lives. Again, sort of abuse and neglect. I mean, one thing that I found is that for a number, and this isn't really just death row inmates, but it's certainly true of death row inmates, it's like so so many of them have had such traumatic and chaotic lives before they committed their crimes and got incarcerated. But once they became incarcerated, they actually kind of pulled it together. You know, I mean, they had structure in their lives for the first time. They had safety. They had food. You know, they were not subject to daily abuse by family members and sexual abuse and all the rest of that. So a lot of the guys who once are in prison, they actually become a bit more of who they are. You know, for a lot of them, they're not on drugs anymore. You know, <laughs> I've got some guys on death row who are just sort of perfectly delightful people. And because I kind of know who they are, I know their hearts, you know, and I know what they're like removed from the circumstances of their environment where they were getting into trouble. And that's kind of one aspect of it. But a second aspect of it is that, I mean, people tend to age out of crime. I mean, we know from the studies in the United States that, you know, most crime is committed by 19-year-old males. And when you've got somebody, you know, who's an incarcerated and they make it to their 40s, they are fundamentally different human beings than they were at the time that they committed their crimes. You know, in much the same way that, you know, a 19-year-old is fundamentally different from an 8-year-old. And so it's people change. They evolve throughout their, their lives. 
and so it's so awful to me, right? I mean, because by the time we actually get around to executing somebody in the United States, they are completely different human beings. And the person who is then being executed just is not deserving of it. You know, I mean, it's like, I know they've done something really terrible and there's a price to pay, but killing somebody, executing them just does not achieve any valuable societal goal in my mind. I mean, and we know that it doesn't work as a deterrence. You know, that's that's the argument you always hear. It's like, well, unless we kill people, then, you know, the crime is just going to continue getting bad. But what you're talking about with especially these kinds of crimes are typically so irrational because the decision to commit these crimes are made by people who are profoundly mentally ill. These are not the people who can be deterred under traditional notions of you know what that means. And I wish we would just kind of acknowledge that executing people is an exercise of kind of bloodlust. It's vengeance. I mean, it's what it is. I wish we would just kind of be honest about saying that. Certainly doesn't function as a deterrence. And I've just never, it's just, it's a very difficult subject, obviously. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, it takes decades for people to actually be executed. So as you say, they might have committed horrendous crimes at 19, but when they're being executed at 58, they could be a completely different person. And you're saying that they are completely different people by then. So we're not deterring anything by taking away their life. So how much of your work then, Elizabeth, involves going into prison? I have been going into prisons since law school which was about 23 years ago. So I've gone into prisons in Wyoming, in New York, throughout the Southeast. I mean, so quite a bit. And have you noticed that across the states, prisons can be extremely different? They can be. One one of the interesting things about the detention, uh, sorry, the correctional institution in Wyoming, because Wyoming is such a small state, all the inmates were in there together. And there was like one gentleman who was wearing like a white jumper and he was their death row inmate. They had one guy on death row at the time, but they had just all these people kind of, you know, milling about together and just sort of this dorm like structure, which is very different than what it is in South Carolina. In South Carolina, I've never been allowed to kind of go into an area where the inmates have been. So, for example, when I go to a prison here, I have to go into like the administration building and they'll put me in, you know, an area with a conference table and then they'll go and get that inmate and bring that inmate into the area with me. Now, I know from the use of contraband, cell phones and the like, like I've seen pictures of what it's like back in the dorms and they're, you know, incredibly filthy institutions, I mean, I think there's probably constitutional violations going on. It's very difficult to bring those claims in the United States for reasons I could discuss or not. But there is a lot of difference. I I remember there was an institution up in New York that I went to that had been, it had been a mental asylum. And so I was like, I drove to this prison to go see a client. And it was like, actually this sort of like beautiful, beautiful building that had been built, you know, back in, I guess, maybe the 1920s or something as a mental asylum, and then was being used to house inmates. 
again, that was one where I was not allowed to kind of go into the back, not allowed to go and see where the inmates were actually being housed, but they had to come into like the cafeteria to meet with me. But, you know, I mean, I hear a lot. I hear a lot. We've got inmates now, the state of South Carolina contracts with some private prisons down in Mississippi and up in South Dakota. And so, you know, it's interesting because I I hear from those inmates what they think about those institutions relative to South Carolina's correctional uh, system. And they think it's nicer. Um, That doesn't really surprise me. This is not a state where people really want to spend a lot of tax money on keeping our detention centers or our correctional facilities in particularly nice shape. And that seems to be borne out by the evidence of what particular people are telling me about other experiences in either South Dakota or Mississippi. And do you know why in South Carolina there seems to be that way where they don't want to spend money? I think it's just, it's part of the culture here. I think we're just particularly punitive. I think you probably find that throughout the South in general. We're very, I mean, this is sort of the same part of the country where we impose the death penalty at greater numbers than other parts of the country. So I think it's just cultural. We just don't really want to put much money into rehabilitation and and it's too bad because I mean, we've got a lot, a lot of people who are in our system who could really benefit from education and trade training and the like. And you might not know, but do you know if there's then larger numbers of recidivism in states like South Carolina where there's a lack of rehabilitation? So it's funny that you say that because our Department of Corrections has sort of lately been touting the fact that they, you know, our recidivism rate here is low. And so if you actually were to do like a Google search, I think you'd probably find that. But what they're tracking is not information that even bears on the question. What they're looking at is once somebody is out of prison, are they then back in prison within three years? And I mean, in the state of South Carolina, if somebody is arrested, it could be about three years before they even get like a trial or or something like that. So, you know, it's, it was like, I think they ought to be looking at maybe five or seven years. I mean, somebody could really like literally get arrested six months after they're released from prison and they're not going to be back in the prison system within two and a half years. Wow. And do you know why it takes so long? Is there a backlog in the courts or is it something else? We have a huge backlog here. So South Carolina is the only state in the country where the prosecutors still kind of get to control the docket system. And so they call the cases they want to call, which typically are the cases that are strong. And then they have weak cases. They can just keep somebody in pretrial detention for a couple of years. And that happens. So you can have people on remand in prison for several years before they've even gone to trial? Yes. Wow. That's scary, isn't it? It is scary. I mean, I think in my experience, I mean, two or three years is not unheard of. And what would you say are some of the, in your experience, some of the biggest problems facing the prisons in America? And based on what you'd said earlier, you said you could or couldn't go into detail about why you wouldn't report it because the state wouldn't do anything about it. Are you able to share a bit about that? Yeah. So 
this kind of goes back to a law that we have, and it's the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1996. So, Back in 1997, I believe it was, it was a pretty bad year. It's the year that Timothy McVeigh blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City. President Clinton, he was our president, and he was never really particularly progressive on criminal justice issues. So in quick order, there were two bills that were passed. There was the Prison Litigation Reform Act, and then there was the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Both of those were signed with very little debate in Congress, but they have had just enormous consequences for American prison population. EDPA is our federal habeas statute, and a Pretty much it has sort of limited people to being able to get their cases into federal court within like one year. But the Prison Litigation Reform Act made it difficult for guys who are currently in prison to hire lawyers to vindicate their constitutional rights. And it did that by limiting the amount of damages that they could be awarded if they win the case. And it limited the attorney's fees that attorneys could get. So when you're doing these civil rights cases, lawyers here handle them on contingency basis. So they may say, well, you know, I'll represent you, but I'm going to take 30% of whatever the award is. And that's pretty typical in civil work. But in the prison system, if you represent an inmate, you're limited for your attorney's fees to 150% of what your inmate would recover. So let's just say, for example, you've got an inmate who has been convicted of rape, very unsympathetic crime. But that person may be subject to all sorts of harassment and abuse by correctional staff or something else. Wants to bring a lawsuit takes it to a jury. A jury may say, you know what, we're going to find for you. We're going to find that your constitutional rights were violated, but we are not going to give you a lot of money. I mean, you're where you need to be, essentially. We're not going to give you money to whatever. So they may award, you know, say $200. Well, the attorney who spent all that time on the case can only make $300 on the case. So the consequence of this is that, I mean, we we essentially have like a constitution-free zone in our prisons because people are not able to bring those cases. Now, the exception is when somebody dies, you can sometimes get a jury to, you know, to award damages in a case for somebody who's passed away. And you're typically bringing those cases on behalf of the estate and not the actual inmates. So you're not capped by this fee cap. But I mean, that's a hell of a way to run a system, right? I mean, you can only sort of vindicate the rights of dead inmates. But that's kind of where we're at. And how does that manifest itself then? So to me, that makes it sound like there can be a lot of problems in prison potentially with, and I never like to downcry prison officers because I feel like the vast majority of them do such a great job and are underappreciated for their work. But we can't get away from the fact that there are select prison officers who are power hungry and they're corrupt. 
So when you're telling me that, it makes me worry, is there then higher rates of potentially prisoners being bullied or corrupted by the prison staff? So I agree with you completely that the vast majority of correction officers do very good work and are very good people and are serving a community that really needs their generosity and their care. And I mean, overwhelming majority are good people. But like any other area, right, you're going to have some bad apples. And yet, you know, I've got a guy right now who is dealing with problems in the federal system. And the same rules sort of apply there as well. It's so difficult, right? I mean, the only thing I can do is go to legal, you know, the legal department and complain about people, you know? And so that's how how I intervene. But it's the only thing I can do. You know, in, in a just world, I would be able to get enough evidence. I would be able to interview perhaps some witnesses and put together a complaint and file it in federal court, you know, and be able to avail myself of like the discovery procedures and really get to the bottom of it and really root it out. I mean, that's how change happens is, you know, being able to kind of litigate something if you need to, but it is impossible for me to do that. And so the only thing I, my only recourse is to call legal and say, Hey, My client's telling me that this is happening. Can you look into it? Yeah. And what kind of things then are your clients telling you that are going on in prison that they're concerned about? Physical abuse, being shoved, being put in lockup for infractions that they say they don't deserve. And that sort of retaliation. I think a lot of inmates are scared that a guard who's upset with them might leave their door unlatched may make them a target for other people in the prison. I mean, prisons can be incredibly dangerous places. And so if you've got somebody who is overseeing you, who may be abusing you or not protecting you, I mean, it's extraordinarily frightening situation. Yeah, absolutely. And you were saying about the prisons being filthy and things. In your experience, are most prisons like that that you've seen? You know, I don't know. Certainly the vast majority of my experience has been in South Carolina prisons. And the ones that I think are probably the dirtiest are the the ones that are maximum security. And those are the prisons where they don't allow like the inmates out, you know, so they may spend a lot of time sort of in their, their rooms. Some of the lesser custodial setting places that I've been have actually been pretty nice. And it's because it's the job of some of the inmates to kind of keep it clean and they enjoy that and they take pride in it. So maybe that would be the distinction I would draw. It seems like maybe the more kind of custodial the setting, the less clean I've seen them because a lot of inmates really, they want something to do. They they appreciate the opportunity to make their environment nicer for themselves and for others. And in the places where they're allowed to do that, they haven't been so dirty. Yeah. And so, as you said, prison can be a very dangerous place for prisoners, but it can also be very dangerous for staff. So in your experience, what can we do to make prisons safer for the people who live and work there? So I think 
A really good idea for keeping staff members safe is to incentivize the prison population to keep them safe. And I think you do that. You know, there's some jurisdictions in um, the United States that have motions for sentence reductions. So, for example, if you can show a judge that since you have started your term of incarceration, that you have taken advantage of all the programming, that you have been well behaved, that you're sort of doing your time in a way that's conducive to the well running of the institution, that you may be able to get some time reduced off your sentence. You know, they're not going to take it from 40 years to 20 years, but it might go from 10 years to eight years. And I just think if you offer those sorts of incentives to these people who are in the prison system, they'll police themselves. I mean, I think what we have now is, you know, again, sort of a overly punitive system. And we've got, you know, like a 22-year-old kid who may get like a 20-year sentence. Why would that kid behave? Obviously, everyone should behave. But when you've got kind of these young kids who are kind of going into the prison system who feel like they've just lost everything, those are the most dangerous people, in my view. And so we would have, I think, a much safer system if we would incentivize these people to kind of realize that they haven't lost everything, that their actions can control their destiny. I I just think that would make an enormous difference. Definitely, because as you say, these people feel like they've got nothing to lose, so they can be very violent and dangerous. And I'm thinking if that person got a 20-year sentence and the motion for sentence reduction might bring it down to 18 years or 17 years, at 20 years old, that might still feel like a lifetime away. So how do you think we can then incentivize them a bit more so that they do behave knowing that they still have 17, 18 years to serve? You know, maybe it's the sort of thing where you want to revise a sentence or you know, check in on a sentence at intervals. I mean, for somebody who's got a 20-year sentence, I mean, why aren't we sort of looking at that person's behavior at 10 years in and deciding whether 20 years was really sort of the right thing to do? Our criminal justice system, I mean, we, we just sort of process people through the system, right? I mean, it's almost like a sausage factory, Like if somebody comes in, they get their time, they go off to the prison and boom, we never hear from them again. But why is that? You know, I mean, we're talking about human beings who are subject to changing and educate, who have, you know, self-determination. I mean, why aren't we, for somebody who gets the 20-year sentence, looking at them in 10 years or seven years and looking at them again at 14 years and sort of reassessing the value of that sentence. I mean, we're not doing it because there are too many people that are going through the system. I mean, we're just not designed to do that. But that's a policy decision. Things could be different. We could be looking at punishment in a very different way than we are. And I think that there's a lot of loss of human potential because of the way that we're currently, how we've currently structured our prison systems. Yeah, I totally agree that maybe they don't need to be there for 20 years. Does it take 20 years to rehabilitate somebody? But certainly in the UK, there's that problem as well where people in power will say, we'll create more prison places and we're going to be tougher on crime and create longer prison sentences. And maybe it's unfair, maybe a lot of the listeners will say that they don't agree with this. I feel like the majority must think that's a good thing. 
the public must think that it's good that we're lengthening them because why are politicians saying it if they don't? Whereas that's that's absolutely not true. I do not believe for a second that if somebody gets a six-year prison sentence, increasing that to eight years is all of a sudden going to change the world. That's two-year change or three, four, five-year change isn't going to change anything. What we're doing with them in prison and how we're helping them reintegrate into society is what's going to make a difference. That's exactly right. I mean, if, and if that logic were correct, if these larger sentences were making us safer, you'd expect that we'd have a very safe population. And we know, just looking around, that we are no safer today than we were 40 years ago, which is when, at least in the United States, this whole era of mass incarceration really started beginning. And in fact, we're much less safe than we were. Long prison sentences are not the key to public safety. Just isn't. (laughs) I mean, the empirical evidence just is what it is. We need to rethink how we're doing this. But it's so hard. And I think we discussed this before. You know, the second you want to start having these conversations, you're immediately kind of labeled being soft on crime. And it becomes a punching bag for your political opponent. You're the one who wants to let the criminals on the street and, you know, all the rest of it. So it's really difficult to have these discussions. There's just no opportunity for redemption in our current system. And on a very kind of human level, that is just so profoundly wrong. I'm just curious to know, can you think of a a person that you have worked with, an accused person who's been convicted, who has maybe done something quite terrible, but then they have transformed their life through prison? And was there a specific program or officer or something that really was the pivotal turning point for them? Honestly, I have encountered a number of people who have committed crimes when they were like 19 or 20, and usually because they had access to a gun and therefore committed these crimes that for which there's just no kind of coming back from, right? I mean, people are dead. And those people who I meet 20 years later are just completely different. And you would never think twice about communicating with this person on the outside. I mean, there's just like nothing criminally about them. You know, they just don't seem like criminals. Again, I think kind of going back to what we're talking about, I mean, it's just sort of natural maturity. And so I don't know that there's particular programs necessarily. I mean, I think a lot of guys, you know, they do go in there and they take advantage of some of the educational programs. They'll get their GED. Sometimes guys in our prison system will kind of create their own programs for other guys you know, talking about anger management or business development, and, you know, things like that. But I think sort of the, the more illuminating question would be, you know, have you met anyone who isn't capable of being redeemed? And, you know, maybe two, three that I've encountered over my 23 years of practicing law, guys who I would be like, mm, you never really need to get out. I mean, they, they exist. I mean, I'm not trying to pretend like they don't. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority, and I mean, I feel confident in saying the vast majority are serving sentences too long. Yeah. 
So you mentioned earlier about private prisons. So I'd just like to touch on on that because, again, private prisons, people have a lot of different views about them. Some people think that private prisons shouldn't exist because you shouldn't be able to make profit from other people's suffering. What are your views on private prisons? Yeah, so my views on private prisons, I think, are a little bit different than a lot of others. I'm not necessarily opposed to private prisons just for this just because they're private prisons. I mean, I think if somebody can create an environment where people are going to be serving some sentences, but are also going to be getting levels of education and high levels of training and maybe sort of mental health counseling and all the rest of it, something that can really sort of take that human being and help that person become somebody who's going to be a valuable member upon their release. There's value in that. (laughs) I don't have a problem with somebody profiting if they can make that happen. And I think we need to kind of be open to sort of the possibilities that exist in this area. But if somebody can do that and they want to, you know, enter into a contract with the state or a country or, or however the financial things are worked out, I mean, I think that's something we really want to encourage. Now, I wouldn't want it to be the sort of thing about, you know, if you're rich, you can go to the private prison. And if you're not rich, you can't. I mean, that would be a clear sort of problem with that. But I mean, if, if somebody with some creative ideas could really service the population of incarcerated individuals in such a way that they're going to be made better able to function once they are released, that's a good thing. (laughs) And and I wish those opportunities existed. Mm -hmm. Because nine times out of 10, prisons do not work right now. There are some that are doing incredible things and we can't take that away from them. But the vast majority of prisons are underfunded, overcrowded, understaffed, and they're not doing a good job. I think that's probably right. I mean, I, but what is their job? I mean, I, I feel like their job description is not necessarily consistent. We want people who are going to be released, who are going to be capable of, you know, not reoffending and who are going to be valuable members of our society. But that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're warehousing. So get clear on what it is that you want to do <laughs> and then execute, you know, and we're just not, we're not being thoughtful enough in how these are, you know, are designed and the way that we want them to operate. Yeah. And that's the thing. They do have that dual purpose of rehabilitation and also security. So they need to maintain the security and keep public safe. But one of their main functions or aims is to rehabilitate people. And when we're understaffed and overcrowded and people are being kept in their cells longer than they should. We're not doing what we should be to get the outcome that we claim we want. I mean, our actions are utterly inconsistent with what we claim we want, these institutions. And the problem is, is America the same where budgets for prisons just seem to get smaller and smaller? I mean, yeah, well, so in South Carolina, we've actually had some increase in our funding lately, but that's because we've had a couple of like horrific riots where numerous people have died and we've had, it it has not been possible to keep employees in our system. I mean, people don't want to work 
there. And we've got some pretty good industries coming in that the people who would be working in our correctional facilities are going to go work for Volvo and they're going to go work for some of these other, you know, international manufacturers who are coming to our state. So they've had to give more money. It's still not enough. You know, <laughs> it's just still not enough. Absolutely. So from your experience, the people you've dealt with, the prisons you've seen, what do you think a perfect prison would look like? And I know that nothing can be perfect prison it's a very difficult topic but in your eyes how could we improve them so that they will do that dual function of keeping people safe but also rehabilitating the people in them i mean i think you want to you know have kind of an environment where people are eating healthy food i think that's a place to start because I don't think that you can have a healthy mind until you have a healthy body. Attending to some of that would be kind of a first step. And then I think you want to have some meaningful education and trades and, you know, and you want to be able to give people freedoms within the institution so that they can exercise their facilities, you know, so maybe they want to be writers, maybe they want to be painters. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to sort of create, you know, the, the luxury prison system, but I mean, human beings need certain needs to be met and we need to meet those needs. That's not even happening. That would be sort of a first start. And then as somebody is perhaps getting ready for their release, I mean, I think there should be some, you know, programming on like how to go through job interviews. I mean, how to make balance your checkbook. I mean, how to, there's some life skills that a lot of people who find themselves in the criminal justice system never developed. And I mean, we need affordable housing for when they are released. As it is now, if you have a felony conviction, you can be removed from public housing. We're making it so that people who, once they're released, have a difficult time even succeeding. We got to rethink that piece of it as well. Yeah. And in terms of prison staff, as we said before, a lot of them are doing an incredible job, but how do you think we can better support them? Because you're seeing that a lot of them are leaving and how do you think we can better support these staff to do the incredible job that they do? I mean, they need more money because they need to be valued. I think, you know, their hours need to be realistic. They work some incredible overtime here. I'm sure that's true everywhere. And then I think kind of what we were talking about earlier, just sort of targeting the prison population to help them keep them safe. You know, once we have inmates who are interested in getting their sentences cut, I think there's going to be the effect of making it safer for our guards. Do you know roughly how much overtime officers tend to work in the U.S.? It's so, so... Whenever I go into prisons, I usually kind of like chat with the officers at the front. And, you know, I'll I'll ask them like, oh, it's a Friday. And they're like, well, but I'm going to be here all day Saturday and all day Sunday. Like, it just seems to me like they're working a lot. (laughs) So I don't know what their hours are. I think they're supposed to just be doing like 40 hours a week. 
But I think a lot of them are doing more because they want the overtime so that they can make money, so they can make a living wage. So, I mean, they're putting in time. Yeah. Is there any officer that's particularly inspired you when you've spoken to them? We've got some great ones. Again, kind of going back to the death penalty work. When we had a resentencing for an inmate not too long ago, you know, several of those guards came and we interviewed them first. And then they also came and they testified that our client had not caused any problems, that our client had a really great sense of humor, that they never felt endangered by our clients. I think they kind of went against maybe what their bosses wanted them to do, but they were willing to come and just be honest with the court. And our judge imposed a life sentence for that inmate. And I'm sure, at least partly because the guards kind of came in and talked about what a fine person he was, you know, and just what a good inmate he was and never gave him any problems. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, that's absolutely lovely. And final question, what's one thing that you want to tell the listeners that they might not know about either the work you do or prisons in general? You know, I just think it's important for people to know, and probably your listeners, because of the area that you're in, maybe this isn't anything new. There's so many people who find themselves caught up in the criminal justice system who are really lovely, good human beings. And, you know, I think we oftentimes kind of assume when somebody ends up with a conviction that that means that they're somehow kind of like less human. And I just think that's one of the real tragedies. You know, people, they end up behind the wall and these prisons and people just don't see them anymore. But we have throughout the world real human beings who are there and who need to have their needs attended to and need to be considered, you know, as the rest of us are trying to figure out how to handle our crime issues. And I think that's it. You know, we just, there's just a human cost to all of this. And I love that you're sort of bringing awareness really to a lot of the guys who work in the prison system, because I think, you know, they're invisible and and people just need to kind of bring attention to exactly these sorts of issues. Absolutely. I I don't know what it is about them. I've never worked in a prison. I don't have any family who have ever worked in a prison, but I do just admire prison staff so much and just feel like it's such a calling to highlight and bring awareness to the incredible work they do. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure to have you on and get your perspective from such a different angle with being a criminal defense lawyer so i'm really grateful to you and it's been such a great conversation thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode i'd love to hear from you so please let me know what you thought of this episode reach out to me and let me know if you have any specific topics you'd like me to cover and any guest requests you have i'd also be so grateful if you'd rate this podcast on whatever platform you listen 